Words like environment or environmentalism aren't often the first things we think of when we think about the far right. But it's not because they don't talk about these things. They, they certainly do. Look back to 2019 and how much uh, issues related to the environment fed into the hateful hodgepodge of ideological justifications for far-right terror attacks in Christchurch in El Paso, something that they merged into and has been described as eco-fascism. Issues related to the environment, to ecology, to climate change, they're not at the core of far-right ideologies right now. But as we continue to face uh, ever more impacts of climate change and continued environmental destruction and degradation, is this always going to be the case? How, do, how does the far-right even understand and uh, relate to nature, the concept of nature? How can we plan ahead to push back against the extremist, eliminationist, and outright genocidal solutions that the far right is inevitably going to try to push into the public space to deal with issues like climate change? To try and understand some of these issues and, and related issues, especially issues around that phrase, eco-fascism, I spoke to Sam Moore and Alex Roberts, the author of the book, The Rise of Eco-Fascism, Climate Change and the Far Right. So Sam, Alex, thanks thanks very much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thanks for having us. It's a great pleasure to be here. Hello. Hi. <laughs> so the first question I have uh, for both of you is, well, it's the kind of cliched question about the motivation of your book. Why did you write your book? Because I kind of have got this question as well about stuff that I've done. But I'm, I'm curious why why you guys have devoted a book of some urgency to a topic about the far right and the environment, about far right ecologism, and obviously about ecofascism, that even on the far right, even for those of us, all, all, all of us, you know, included, it, it's not something that necessarily dominates discussion about the far right, but it's something that is, you know, some, something that does come up. So I'm just, I'm just curious, why, why this book? Why now? Why focus on Ecofascism, the rise of ecofascism now. So I guess there are kind of two different forms of urgency involved in the book. Um, one yeah. is the form of urgency that seemed to come out of a spate of um, terrorist shootings, uh, most famously that in the on the fifteenth of March, twenty nineteen, uh, committed in Christchurch, um, in New Zealand, where fifty one Muslims were killed in two separate mm-hmm. attacks in uh, there. And that was one sense of urgency. Uh, there seemed to be a need to explain what it was that these terrorists, these kind of far-right terrorists, who were seemingly cloaking their hatred for Muslims or their kind of quite conventional, in some ways, far-right concerns, things like birth rates, things like what they mm-hmm. would describe as ethnic replacement right, in an environmental language. Or in in, a, in the in the cloak of environmentalism, or the cloak of ecological concern, and so it was necessary. There was kind of urgency to explain that, but I think there was also a more pronounced urgency, and an urgency that I'd want to kind of say that we shifted towards in the process of writing the book and thinking mm-hmm. about the um, the topic, which is an urgency that it consists mostly of thinking about the way in which climate change, not as a single apocalyptic event, not as the kind of event that the 
uh, these terrorist tutors were imagining mm-hmm. because it would be more differentiated, more concretely specific, um, and indeed more to do with the environment um, than they were imagining. How mm-hmm. that might, that situation, climate change, might open up offerings to the far right, new kind of tactical or strategic situations mm-hmm. that the far right could um, draw on and it, it or could kind of take advantage of, sorry. And in doing so, they would be able to draw on the history of what we call in the book far-right ecologism. Right. Um, a kind of a long and extremely contradictory multivariate history of the way right. in which far-right actors have got themselves into situations where there is some sort of crisis in the relationship between nature and mm-hmm. human societies or nature and politics or what have you. And they've kind of acted in those 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 crises moments uh, in ways that deepened, you know, hierarchies of like racial power um that uh enhanced enforced deepened uh militarized securitized and so on structures of inequality mm-hmm. and so on and so there seemed to be this kind of double urgency on the one hand the urgency right. of addressing and explaining these shooters and on the other hand the kind of the the, the longer term urgency of thinking about the fire in climate change as it comes towards us there's also the uh kind of problem that we came up with when doing anti-fascism because we've got we've got like an activist background in anti-fascism that of course it's quite reactionary it's quite responsive to what to what you know there's a fascist threat or there's some kind of far-right emergence and then there's a response to that threat and what we want mm-hmm. to do is try and get ahead of try and like kind of forecast how the right. far right would adapt to this new like kind of a newly precarious world um kind of racked by crisis and and so parts of the book, like a good third of the book, we do have a has section on the history of of far right ecologism, but it's also a lot of forecasting as well. Um, you know, it's the, your kind of speculative forecasting is is kind of a very common practice in kind of political science and investigative research and all different kinds of stuff. And yet, in the anti fascist anti fascist sphere, there's much less of it. And so it's also the book is also, like some said, in a kind of writing in anticipation of a politics to come. And so we're not mm-hmm. necessarily saying that the kind of futures we sketch out are, are, are what's definitely going to happen, but it's really good to have some kind of um, framework in which we can kind of organize our thoughts um, mm-hmm. to respond to whatever it does happen. You know? That's a great way to explain it, because that's actually the sense that, uh, you know, that I got reading the book was, I mean, as somebody obviously who researches and writes about the far right, uh, a little bit too much these days, I suppose. But what really struck me reading the book and getting into it was that uh, both of you were exactly like you just explained. They were, you were not, this is not a book and this is not, you, you're not presenting your thoughts in a way that is strictly reacting to developments that are, that are going on or even in the near future, the way that at least the sense that I got, the way that you've approached the book and approached the topic is trying is exactly like you like you said trying to look beyond you know the the short term and really think about okay what is actually what form is the far right going to take what forms is far right extremism and ideology ideologies what are they going to take when we are increasingly beset by climate emergencies and i think it was really it was really stimulating for me to to think about that in a, in a in a less reactive way, because I think we can all agree that when we're writing about researching the far right, we 
a lot of what we do is reacting to what they are doing. And I think that's what's innovative about what you guys have done. And a, a bit of thinking for myself going ahead is looking even further ahead to what may come and trying to sketch out what things might look like. So I'd also say that one of the kind of this, I, had to, I recently had to reread the book because uh, I didn't mm-hmm. uh, talk about it. Um, so I would say one of the strengths kind of looking back on it, we're almost going to mm-hmm. be a year out of publication now, um, yeah. is that in order to do that speculative work, we had to develop um, quite what I would describe as a kind of a deep and like complicated model of the far right, not just in its environmental politics. So right. we're not just saying, oh, they happen to believe this, or they happen to believe that about nature, about the environment, about you know, climate change. Mm-hmm. But actually, they have a whole model of society, and we have a model of them that allows us to predict all the different kind of transformations in the way in which we think about the, uh, in which we're, sorry, in the way in which they think about nature, act in response to nature, and so on. And so I think, like, one of the advantages of forecasting is that it demands that you have a deeper, richer, more complex model of what you're looking at than you would ha- need to have if you were just describing something that has already happened in this kind of reactive mode. Yeah, you definitely that, that that's definitely something that comes through, especially in the earlier stages of the book, talking about the history of the far right and its relationship to nature, to the environment, and honestly, a lot of the contradictory ways that the far right relates to nature and the environment. And I, I think the the idea of the far right being contradictory about something in, in its approach to something is, uh, you know, <laughs> not a surprise, but. Um, in terms of some of these contradictions in terms of the way that the far right approaches ecology, the environment, what, there's one point that you make in the book about the, the sort of contradiction be, on the far right when it comes to climate change denialism. Like You point out, obviously, that climate change denialism runs rampant across the far right or radical right or wh- whatever terms we're going to use, uh, where the far right can, you know, believe in climate change denialism, but also at the same time, exploit environmental issues for its own benefit. You point out, however, in the book that this isn't exactly a contradiction at at its face and that the, these ideas feed off each other. Can you talk a bit more about how the climate change denialism that we generally associate with the right actually can, can work hand in hand with exploiting the environment and environmental issues for their own benefit? Um, I think it, it's really important, and you know, Andreas, people like Andreas Malm have talked about kind of fossil capital and how it it, it kind of is the kind of central driving force of of modern uh, social relations and economic forces. And I would agree with that. Um, and we have to think about, I suppose, when we, in terms of nihilism, we have to think about how the difference between mitigation and adaptation. Oftentimes, when you see these kind of more governmental far right forces, like far right, the far right in government. They're mm-hmm. you know much much more happy to talk about adaptations when it involves things like borders and a more kind of intense, rigorous mm-hmm. policing of of kind of marginalised populations, um, in in kind of response to an ever kind of uh, a heating a heating world, rather than the kind of adaptations needed to to really kind of blunt this crisis and and keep us below one point five uh, degrees of global heating, and so. Um, you have you have situations where you know, um, for example, in in France, where um, the preservation of France as a kind of natural landscape as a nation is kind of prioritised above, above all else, and so you kind of have the far right um, 
Rassemble National are perfectly happy for like uh, tar sand extraction, oil extraction in Canada um, to be fed into the EU's uh, energy supply and yet are completely opposed to any kind of drilling or any kind of exploitation of France's natural resources in the nation mm. itself. And so this kind of um, manipulation of scale on, on which we adapt to or mitigate climate change is also really important. There's also the kind of really obvious point about it as well is that, you know, you know, obviously the climate crisis is going to affect all of us uh, eventually. There's no way to escape it. And yet, in the meantime, the process of becoming more and more in crisis, it is those those countries in the global south, in countries particularly precarious, um, with you know growing populations and ill-equipped to defend, to adapt to to a heating world, are going to face the effects of the climate crisis first. And for kind of for the far right, that's actually a positive. That's actually a really good thing. It means that um, you know there's more of an argument they can make to their own kind of to to white people in the in the global north that. You know, we need to defend ourselves against this incorruption chaos, and therefore, these this set of policies, this set of reaction policies, is is appropriate. And so, denialism is really useful. Is really useful in creating a world in which is much more kind of racially stratified, much more unequal, that kind of thing. That's what really struck me about that when 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 you discuss that in the book is it, that it allows the racialization of the impacts of climate change so that in the global north, as you say, the far right in France or wherever else can point to, you know, climate change related catastrophe somewhere in the global south and claim that the the reason for those for those catastrophes is because those people, those capital O other, you know, in the global south are you know, that they're just incapable of civilization or whatever whatever you know, offensive tropes that that they can use and that they they can play on. What you what, when you were talking, it reminded me, perhaps a bit obviously, of the the novel, the the Camp of the Saints. In terms of, and yeah. for for people who aren't aware of that, uh, you can or can't look it up de- depending on how you feel. Because even just I wouldn't wick- bother. It's not that good a novel. <laughs> no, okay. I've never I've never actually read it. I'm just thinking of the even even if you yeah. look through the the Wikipedia description, or I think there have been articles written about the book because the the novel, a French novel from I believe the early '70s, and the author of the novel is escaping me, but I think that's okay. Uh, you know, you just read the description of how of how you know non-white people are described in this book, and it's just like it's just nuts and i see more and more of that kind of rhetoric more and more of that kind of language that approach if if you get, i can even use that word to to relating to the global south particularly when it comes to potential well actual climate change impacts some of those some of that some of those kind of tropes from camp of the saints might well become real so i think what's kind of striking about this about the camp of the saints um and we'd probably put it in the history of Malthusianism, is that um, the kind of depictions it has of people in the, in the global south, and this is true of what we describe as neo, neo-Malthusianism more generally, the kinds of depictions that it offers are contradictory, um, even mm-hmm. inside themselves. So on the one hand, people in the global south are stylized as kind of like savages who are barely different from the nature they inhabit, right? They're kind of like mm. almost natural objects. 
And on the other hand, they're actually very highly developed. Uh, they're actually very industrious. And the problem then is that they have industrialized or developed in a way that has destroyed their natural environment. And now they're kind of paying the, the penalty. They're kind of paying the cost. Mm-hmm. And so you have a kind of a tension here in this neo-Malthusianism between on the one hand saying that, okay, racialized people are not civilized enough and saying they're actually in some ways too civilized. And what we need is a kind of return to like the regulatory structure of nature. And so a lot of the tension in securitization and denialism, which as you were mentioning a a moment Mm -hmm. ago, we put together in the book, a lot of that tension comes in the tension between notions of civilization and a lack of civilization and the different ways that like particular concrete aspects of, um, you know, a particular global South societies can be uh, played uh, in different different ways at different scales, like Alex was saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, just one more thing to add. You know, um, Sam talked about kind of the return of the kind of regulative aspect of nature, and that is very true. But also, we need to kind of uh, keep in mind um, kind of a colonial, the legacy of colonialism, legacy mm-hmm. of imperialism, which is kind of very underlying a lot of these kind of far right themes. Um, a, a reemergence of that kind of, of that of that kind of relationship between white countries and non-white countries between the global south, north, and the global south, is ultimately foundational to what the kind of I, I suppose one ideal far right world, if you want to put it that way. And mm-hmm. um, we should say, of course, as well that the adaptations, specifically to in regards to borders, only particularly really apply to human beings, to people. Like kind of the flow of resources, the flow of capital, um, the flow of you know kind of technology and all that kind of stuff is is, is perfectly okay. To that's all fine. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think that's something we need to keep in mind too. Another thought I had reading re- reading the book, and I think particularly actually in the introduction, I think is when it is actually, and I think I think it's great that you discuss this straight away is the impact that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has had on the way that you both have thought about and approached the issue. And it's actually one of the first things when, like almost quite literally when I sat down to open the book, it's, it's something that struck me right away and it immediately gave it more of a sense of urgency that I might've thought initially, because I mean, I think the COVID-19 pandemic has, you know, now forgive forgive me if you sort of make make this argument or 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 would agree with this argument but uh, the you know the policy political responses to the covid-19 pandemic have in some way seemed to presage even in you know maybe much smaller ways but they seem to presage some of what the policy and political responses might be as time goes on to the the impacts of uh, of climate change. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. I think that's, that's exactly right. Um, one of the things that the pandemic allows us, I think, now that we've kind of been through it, we've had some sort of experience with the feeling of being governed and also with the feeling of the different ways that governance has played out across the globe, is we have a much clearer sense, like a much more kind of, you know, visceral sense in our own bodies of exactly how it is that, um, crises are managed, organized, and so on. How their mm. um, their unequal aspects are like uh, forced um, upon populations. Right? Like we have we have all these things much more clearly now uh, than we did, I think, before. Um, right. We say at the very beginning that there's a kind of a, 
a, a way of imagining climate disaster as you know either like a polar bear on a bit of ice floating away from the arctic tragic mm. sad or as like hot summers which people seem to find kind of ambivalent i mean i think people got over that when it was 40 degrees here in the uk but yeah uh, before that they found they found that quite kind of peculiar um to as a thing to worry about They're like, well might, mm. might might be a bit hotter that seems fine with me um yeah. or when it gets when it gets hot and actually you know yeah <laughs> starts taking people's lives in a way yeah. that people are not used to in a particular country well, or well know. even then like there's a kind of a there's an unevenness to um, well, absolutely heat is, yeah. deaths right um who dies in in heat waves mostly elderly people exactly uh, and if you don't really care about elderly people that's like kind of okay with yeah. you. Anyway, but but then we have this third way of imagining climate change which is a which is the day after day, the day after tomorrow right um mm. a giant pan, like kind of a giant wave like destroys the Empire State Building. The, 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 these are our three different ways of imagining climate change. Mm-hmm. And what the pandemic gave us is just like a very concrete, specific, detailed way of imagining what it is to live through a crisis and, importantly, to be governed in a crisis. Right. I mean, you really see, or really see, well, still see now, but you know, especially saw more, you know, over the over the past two two and a half years, the extent to which borders and became so much more concrete and so much more meaningful not meaningful in a good way in 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 terms of the in terms of actual us in terms of people not being able to cross borders with the ease or the frankly the privilege that they've been used to for those of us in in the global north or those of us from i'm from canada so you know being from a country where i'm used to used to and i'm well aware of this privilege of being used to just being able to show up in most countries and wave my passport and get in and then it all of a sudden being something that none of none of us in you know more privileged global north countries something we weren't used to in terms of oh i need to pass all these kinds of restrictions to get in all of a sudden you know we and i'm very much using the the bracketed we you know we started to experience what it's like for in in some very minor ways what it's like for those from the global south to try to Get, try to gain access to the global north just these these walls were put up put up and you really saw how people were very much not used to this sort of thing i think one of the things that the pandemic also did was expose long um long-term changes uh that we hadn't really kind of registered in a really sharp and well-defined way so one of the things people like to talk about uh, in 2016 is the kind of the malevolence of the internet, um, the way in which it was harboring far-right thought, almost as if, you know, connecting two computers together via a server um, was the magical spark that produced uh, neo-Nazis. Of course, I don't believe that. That's not how it works. You know, there's, there was this kind of this like understanding of, of, of uh, the internet as a kind of a malevolent force. But mm-hmm. I think what was changing there was the kind of the composition of our societies, um, the way in which we have dense societies or kind of fragmented societies or societies that have been kind of pulled apart, um, often kind of, I would suggest deliberately. Uh, Wendy Brown writes very convincingly about this in in her book called In the Ruins of Neoliberalism. And 
and so we, we um, these changes have happened quite slowly over the course of like 40 years. And then you've got these sudden, completely unprecedented kind of event suddenly appear, the pandemic, COVID-19, this new um, kind of threat. And all these things that have been changing very gradually, including those border regimes, including the idea that you can travel freely, or including the idea that you are restricted in your in your in your travel, like very harshly, all of those things suddenly come to light. But it's not that they were there kind of because of the pandemic, but that the pandemic simply made visible the kinds of slow-moving changes that were already underway. And I think if there is a kind of urgency to the book as well, like I was saying at the very beginning. There might be a sense that we are moving towards a kind of a a way of thinking about crisis, a way of thinking about nature, a way of thinking about politics that tends more and more and more towards a kind of a, a low level, far right kind of um, way of right. thinking. And then if there's another kind of sudden crisis, I think it's entirely plausible that that will be exposed in the same way the pandemic exposed, you know, the new structures of borders exposed, you know, the, the new constructions of societies. So related to Central and Eastern Europe, I mean, our work at Bellingcat these days focuses primarily on Central and Eastern Europe. And I was recently, actually last week, this uh, some research came out and there's a brief uh, article from uh, Balsha Lubarda. Um, hi, Balsha, if you're listening, uh, who's a, you know, a PhD and a researcher and author. I was writing about uh, the environment and the far right quite extensively, not just in the Western Balkans, but around the world. And he points out in this in, in this brief report that in the Balkans, and I think he's especially thinking of Serbia here, that politicians there have used what he calls scaremongering in environmental protests, where the far right, some far right groups have been involved actually in some environmental protests, even if just tangentially involved in involved here there but he points out that some politicians have used this kind of scaremongering of the presence of the far right to discredit the specific protests and to discredit environmental movements in in general is this something that either of you have come across in in your research writing the book or are just familiar with this sort of thing around around the world because this this sounds like this this is a very central and eastern european kind of kind of thing, a sort of political technology in terms of, you know, trying to discredit an entire protest because of the presence of the far right. But is this something you've come across in your work? I think there's there's definitely something with a tendency we've noticed, not necessarily coming from, like, I suppose, in more institutional venues, but more from kind of the activist movements, environmental activist movement itself, in that there's a kind of a desire to kind of discover ecofascism within environmental movements, root it out, which is obviously a very, you know, worthwhile impulse. Uh, and yet it, it's kind of like, we have like close reading of what certain speech, about certain speeches or what kind of certain figureheads say or don't say in order to kind of, kind of brand a whole movement or brand a whole set of kind of actions or direct actions as somehow like kind of crypto eco-fascist, if you want to add how many extra stuff on the end of the, onto the front of the word fascism as possible. Um, and that's definitely a kind of a tendency that we need to be kind of quite rigorous about as well. Like I, I, I read the I read the article um, before before we, we we sat down to record, and I think um, 
oftentimes there's kind of like a, a kind of very a simplification of kind of the forces at play in these kind of situations. Like there's either kind of the central governmental position and then there's an extreme which is coming in on mm-hmm. it, which is kind of the kind of, I suppose, the classic counter, counter-extremism view of, of kind of these kind of political forces. And therefore that, that kind of argument that there's far rights associated with the environmental movements, therefore we should, you know, kind of be very wary or, or oppose these environmental movements or whatever, um, that makes sense in that framework. And what I would argue for is a, a, a more complicated view of, of kind of multiple forces at play at the same time. And so you can, as an, if I'm putting myself in the position of an environmental activist, mm-hmm. you would but you would see um, those far right elements who are trying to get involved in the in 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 movements and in campaigns for their kind of far right ends as an enemy, as equally as a, a, a equally as much an enemy as you know, the the owner of the mine who's trying to start a mine and the government is trying to, to profit off that mine as well and 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 also not do any not do enough about mitigating climate change. And so there's kind of three kind of separate things at work there. And so as a kind of um as kind of people within society, we need to be recognizing that there are there are there are different different forces at play. I would say I I think I think I have basically the kind of the same idea, and maybe this goes back to um, a kind of moment earlier where you were wondering whether or not we should talk about the far right or the radical right or like something else, the kind of extreme yeah, right. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, the, this I, I from I know from your, your previous book, the post internet far right. I have it up on my bookshelf. I'm just looking up at it. Uh, you know, I think in any any other sorts of books on the far right, there's yeah, how many different definitions and justifications of definitions and yeah yeah i mean i i would defend um in this case like the use of the word far right Mm -hmm. because for this kind of exact reason right which is that the far right gives a very clear sense that you are dealing with a kind of bit of a political spectrum that is not separate from it or particularly weird within it or not some sort of alien thing but is the extreme end of a, of a distribution of technologies, what you described earlier as political technologies, mm. um, right? Which, uh, which is basically continuous with the rest of like politics. It's not this exceptional evil thing somewhere else, right? It's it, it's part of politics, um, and what that means um, is that we can think about it in 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 kind of essentially the same framework as everything else. Um, but also, it means that as politics as it is currently constructed, kind of moves ahead. Um, that is namely kind of as liberalism, I would say, which is basically the kind of the several hundred year uh, ruling ideology of, 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 of most of the politics that we are talking about, right? As liberalism progresses, it's not separate from this far right thing. It's not against this far right thing. Mm-hmm. It permanently reconstructs it. Like, and, and the far right is kind of always there as a kind of threat, as a kind of a way of dealing with certain contradictions inside liberalism. And what that means is that on the one hand, although we're not dealing with something kind of evil that should be expunged or can be expunged. Um, we are dealing with something that uh, is quite like different um, in a sense, or kind of like is the extreme end. And therefore, I don't think we need to worry about you know the demons within us, the kind of the fascist demons, like Alex was saying in the environmental movement. Mm-hmm. People are very concerned that they are um, you know secretly eco-fascists in some sort of way. But I do think we need to be cognizant of the way in which the far far right politics is bound up with the kinds of liberalism we might otherwise uh, espouse. Yeah, I, I mean, I think most mainstream discourse on the far right in any of our countries is usually 
predicated on this notion, and I agree, this sort of false notion that the far right is somehow separate from the rest of us. It's somehow ex- it's it's somehow some sort of sickness that exists outside of our yes. normal day-to-day politics and has no relation to it. And I think we all agree that that's very much not the case. I I mean, I I subscribe very broadly to the idea that the far right anywhere is essentially just a radicalization of mainstream values to use Casmoda's term, you know, it's, yeah. it, it's on whichever part of the mainstream, it's merely a radicalization of those values. It's not something that's been dropped from space. I mean, every far right tendency that we could all spend hours talking about, whether it's like what we've talked about in previous episodes of our podcast, talking about um, hyper-masculinity, talking about anti-LGBT prejudice, uh, you know, talking about far right fight clubs, anything like that. It all, and of course, you know, far right ecologism and ecofascism, it comes from, it, it doesn't, yeah, like I said, it hasn't been dropped from space. It comes from elements and ideological elements of and values of mainstream society and mainstream politics. But one question that I think to kind of end things off on is, you know, where do you think things might go from here? Are we in the short, medium, or longer term, however, however we define that? Are we going to start seeing more explicitly sort of far-right ecological or eco-fascist movements? Do you think we're going to start seeing more individuals on the far-right co-opt or start to explicitly engage more in far-right ecologism? And generally, what do you think our reactions, all of our reactions should be but also not be. I think uh, going forward, I think, yeah, I mean, it's something I've been thinking a lot about and there's no easy answer because obviously telling the future, as we say in the book, is is, is very difficult and, and only gets you so far. Um, I think we're going to see a kind of a mass investment in the climate crisis as, as, as material effects are starting to be increasingly felt everywhere and in, in greater and greater degrees. And I think that's going to become unavoidable. And what we've seen since the 80s of this kind of disengagement with kind of politics on a more general level is going to re-emerge. And we're going to start seeing a kind of mass involvement of of, of people in politics beyond the electoral, um, the elect, kind of electoral politics. And that's ultimately a good thing to be welcomed and a necessary thing. If you could see what happened at COP27, the kind of very disappointing conference in which, you know, kind of very little was made. Um, a loss and damage fund was uh, agreed and yet not, not was not funded. Um, there was even some weakening on commitments. And, and in fact, what what people, scientists have been telling us is that those commitments made at COP26 would, would, you know, kind of need to be reinforced and kind of people to go further. That didn't happen. And and of course, the next next conference, there is not much prospect of, of progress either, and so we can see that um, you know, kind of governmental um, governments and kind of corporations and and you know business interests are not going to be able 
or are willing to commit to the kind of things that we need to keep the world in a in a, in a not, yeah. more or less kind of you know okay situation. And so it's going to be necessary for mass movements and and you know great numbers of people to be forcing these changes themselves. And we're seeing that in in America. We're seeing that with the kind of all over the world with these kind of um, youth climate uprisings, you know, direct actions, just stop just stop oil in the UK, insulate Britain, for example. All these kind of things are going to intensify. That also entails that um, more reactionary elements, including far right forces and including fascist forces, will become increasingly interested in the climate crisis, not just as a crisis that you know kind of fascism feeds off itself, feeds off crises but also as a kind of problem to be solved. And there will be, you know, kind of these solutions presented. And I think that, you know, we need to be making our movements and making our organisations, making our kind of work that we do, um, you know, as, you know, uh, in, in, in kind of trying to solve the climate crisis, making all those things reflexively anti-fascist, making those mm-hmm. kind of, to, to use a metaphor, immunizing our movements against um, kind of politics that kind of lead to a situation of hierarchy, of domination, uh, racial hierarchy, I mean, of domination. Um, so, yeah. All, all, the things that, all the things that the far right loves and all the things that underpin what the far right is at the core, yeah. Yeah, there shouldn't be some kind of like, we need to create a unity between every single kind of factor within society in order to solve this problem because some of those factors are if you kind of tolerate them then you know as the kind of old cliche goes then they will kind of ultimately uh, wipe out everything else mm-hmm. i want to make some um concrete predictions uh oh prediction yeah. time all right yeah <laughs> I, I i've learned i i've learned not to do that but i'm giving you the floor go yeah you're you're, oh, no, a, you're a mug sum what are you doing i am going to be wrong but uh <laughs> at least i'll have a kind of a uh, a way of updating uh, yeah. our models in light of the fact that I will be wrong. Um, so what Alex is saying is absolutely crucial. There will be, I think, greater participation in politics in, let's say, the medium to long term. Um, that is essential. It is completely, like, you know, I hope foundational to the story of the 21st century. In the in In the short to medium term, so maybe like 10, 15 years, what that's going to look like is people joining movements that are actually quite incoherent, um, quite chaotic, quite fast-moving, quite odd. Mm-hmm. Something really weird happened in 2020 uh, with QAnon, right? QAnon used to be, uh, when it was founded, a quite discreet theory about Hillary Clinton and uh, Huma Abedin and John Podesta, right? Like elite Democrats. And they were doing awful, awful evil things, apparently, according to the theory, and they were soon to be arrested, right? That was a the theory. Mm-hmm. But during this period of, of pronounced um, existential threat, really, in, in the form of the pandemic, um, that mutated and became a theory of everything. So QAnon started to kind of consume the entire world. Everything became uh, a kind of a sign uh, of um, you know, the reckoning to come. And then the reckoning, because it didn't come, mm-hmm. had to kind of shift terrain. So it was no longer about a particular collection of people being arrested and put in Guantanamo Bay, but about the kind of spiritual transformation of the entire world. Now, that kind of movement has happened lots of times before. People have kind of urged on a kind of spiritual transformation. Um, one way you place you might like uh, think of that is like early 
20th century Germany, where like mm-hmm. this kind of movement was like very pronounced. Um, you get the, the kind of Volkish movement and so on a few decades earlier as well, uh, which tries to kind of spiritually transform Germany without um, kind of materially addressing its uh, social contradictions and so on. So it's a dangerous situation. And, and I'm going to just suggest that I think that these, um, it's like flood water, right? As cities right. flood, um, they the, the, the sewers flood. And this means that the water that rises up contains loads of like detritus. Like to, to be really concretely disgusting about it, it contains loads of shit. Mm. Um, and some of that shit is fascist shit, right? And I think maybe one of the problems I think we're going to have is that we're going to see as these kind of conspiratorial waters rise, to kind of slightly overextend the metaphor, as these conspiratorial waters rise, we're going to see little bits of like fascist shit floating in the water. And we're going to point to them and be like, that's fascism. And like, this flood is fascism. This movement is fascism. But actually, I think almost certainly these movements that we're going to see, the kind of conspiratorial movements formed of these newly reorganized societies, newly connected societies, are going to be very contradictory, very chaotic, very fast-moving, very odd. And if we're going to engage with them, I don't think it should be in the way that we would normally engage with a bunch of avowed neo-Nazis who've got you know a swastika and a Sikh highlight. Right? Mm. Like it shouldn't be that kind of engagement because that way we will just like lose these people forever. Um, and so I would urge a certain kind of uh, flexibility in, in in dealing with this stuff, even as I would also agree entirely with what Alex said about uh, the need to kind of immunize environmental movements against uh, fascist and authoritarian and, and and racializing tendencies as well. So yeah, that's the concrete prediction, uh, and that's the very complicated strategy. That's a pretty good concrete prediction, and uh, I, I wasn't expecting you to to go from. QAnon, which obviously at Bellingcat we do a lot of research on, to shift from QAnon into an elaborate uh, but meaningful metaphor of shit. You know, I <laughs> <laughs> was not expecting that, but I think it actually sums it up pretty well. Um, so, with that, uh, thanks very much for taking the time to chat with me, guys. I'm wondering if there's, if there's anything else, anything else about the world of of the far right and the environment and ecofascism that you want to squeeze in just now when you've got the time. You should go and buy a book. Uh, <laughs> that, yes, go, go, go buy their book. I, I've read it. Some of my colleagues have read it as well. So, I mean, obviously, that's why I'm here talking to you guys. So go read it. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bellingcat Monitoring Podcast. If you want to keep up with what the far right is up to around the world, make sure to follow the Bellingcat Monitoring Project on Twitter at BCAT Monitoring and on Bellingcat.com. The Bellingcat Monitoring Podcast is produced by Michael Colborn and Giancarlo Fiorella for Stitching Bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled Glowing Vitality by Dreamcave, courtesy of Epidemic Sound.